With great joy and anticipation, I invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious Word this morning to Psalm 63. Psalm 63. Now I want to invite you to stand in reverence for reading the perfect Word of our Sovereign God. Stand knowing that in the Scripture, and in the Scripture alone, We know the true story of the world. Psalm 63. O God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh faints for You. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon You in the sanctuary, beholding Your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword, and they shall be a portion for the jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Let's pray. O Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Creator, Sustainer, Redeemer, we pray to You today. And we pray, Lord, that as we meet You in Your Word, that You would transform us, that You would change us. That You would impact every part of our lives. Every nook and cranny would be changed because we have seen You in Your Word this day. Oh Lord, bring us the satisfaction that can only come from You. Bring us the hope and assurance that can only come from You. Lord, we ask it in the name of Jesus. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> My life has never been the same since I encountered God in this psalm. Now, I had read this psalm before, probably many times, but there's a particular point where I read this psalm And everything for me changed. I read it and encountered God. I I had an experience with God through this psalm that changed me. It helped me to experience God in my daily life. It clarified my Christian life. What became apparent to me is that my Christian life, though it involves ideas about Him, 
It could not be just ideas about Him. Though it must involve doctrinal categories of understanding what He has given us in His Word, it could never be merely doctrinal categories. Though Jesus calls us to a particular way of life and we're supposed to walk after Him in obedience and there are ways in which we are to walk in life, that my walking with Him can never be just simply following a way of life. But rather, we follow a person. And a person with whom we experience. By His grace, the great triune God has revealed Himself to us. And He invites us not just to know things about Him, but to know and walk with Him. See, we are called to an authentic Christian experience of Him. And this psalm delivered that to me in ways that I had never known before. It's not just me. The church father Chrysostom said the early church leaders would say that no Christian should go a day in their lives without singing this psalm. St. Augustine said that this was his favorite psalm. Contemporary commentator Derek Kidner says there may be other songs that equal this outpouring of devotion, but none surpass it. James Montgomery Boyce, a great pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, called it a love song for God. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great English Baptist preacher, called it an imperial psalm. And what he meant by that was it is one that is fit for any and every occasion. In other words, there is no situation, no moment, no thought where you cannot apply what is in this psalm. That seemed to me a good way to close out this year as we look ahead to a new year. First of all, notice the the superscription here at the very beginning that gives us a sense of context. It is a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, we have two options for David being wandering in the wilderness like this. One is at the the very beginning when he was fleeing from King Saul in his early life. The second is later when he was fleeing from his own son Absalom. He was king and Absalom was after him to take the throne. And and we know from verse 11, Psalm 63, 11... He is the king here at this time, so it's most certainly the latter. The story of Absalom's rebellion against David is told in 2 Samuel verses 15-19. through At some point, his heart was turned against his father. And he spent four years attempting to win the hearts of the people and to foment rebellion against his father and his rule. He tried to establish a rival kingship. David feared an attack on Jerusalem and and fled. And and Absalom was counseled to attack immediately, and yet he waited. And it ended up, as he attacks David and the forces rout him, and there are 20,000 men dead at the end of that, and Absalom was one of them. But this is written in that period where he's fleeing. He's 
He's in the wilderness. He's, he's in the desert. Look at Psalm 63, verse 4. As long as I live, Psalm 63, verse 9, those who seek to destroy my life, David is in the barren desert of Judah. He is fleeing for his life at the hands of a rebellion by his own son. Imagine the heartache. Imagine the pain. Imagine the agony. It's one thing to fight off a rebellion, but when the one who seeks to destroy you and your reign is your own son. Imagine the hurt. The pain. Well, that's where David is as we look at this psalm. Look with me at the first two verses. Psalm 63, verses 1 and 2. The first thing I want us to see is it calls us here to have a spiritual thirst for the covenant God. The covenant God, the true God, the true and living God who has revealed Himself in the Scripture, who has made promises to His people. A spiritual thirst for the covenant God. Look with me at the first two verses. O God, You are my God. Now, notice at the very beginning there, You are God, You are mine. He he is not talking about this, this thirsting, longing, trying to get to God, trying to forge your relationship with God. No. He says, You are mine. I am in relationship with You. But then He goes on to say, My soul thirsts for You. My flesh faints for You. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Now notice this, you are my God. Earnestly, the the word uh, can be translated early as it is in some translations. It it just means a, a priority. And so earnestly is the way a lot of translations translate it. Earnestly, I seek you. You see, the more you know God, the more you seek Him. It's not the other way around. And I also want you to see this. Knowing His absence is a sign of His presence. If you you feel His absence, you, you long for a greater sense of His presence, That is one of the proofs that He is present in your life. You know, when you love someone and you're a healthy marriage relationship and your heart is knit with someone and you're away for a period of time, your heart aches for their presence. That's a sign of your love. Your your aching for their presence is... Not a sign that you don't have a relationship. It is the very marker of your relationship. And all who are in right relationship with God have a sense of of earnestly seeking Him. Their their soul thirsting for Him. Their flesh, literally, that's not a flesh used in a negative way in the way you see it in the New Testament a lot meaning uh, flesh of sin, but just the physical body. My flesh faints for you. The word faints means aches or, or my whole self. It speaks of a desperation. My body is aching for you. 
The, the psalm goes on and talks about the, the whole being being affected by this longing for the presence of God. He talks about his life in verse 3, the tongue in verse 4, the hands in verse 4, the will in verse 5, the mouth in verse 5, the memory in verse 6, the intellect in verse 6. Everything about me, all that I am and all of my sensory perception is to be affected by the reality of your presence. I thirst for you, O God. I think of the words of Uh, Augustine, where he wrote in his confessions, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. You see, here's the truth. Everybody longs for God. There are some that know it, and there are others who long for God and they have no idea. And in the place of God... There's all kinds of substitute gods. Oh, if I can just get this, if this person would just love me, if this person would just treat me different, everything would be changed. If I can just achieve this in my my job, my work, this level of success, then everything will be different. If I can just have this amount of money, if I just didn't have this health problem, if you would take that away, everything would be different and all of the things would be transformed by this particular thing. It is but substitute gods and it is a way to avoid the true and living God. You see, all of those things in this world that we think will satisfy our greatest longings and fix everything else, all of those things are domesticated. We think that we can control them. You see, the great um, challenge of trusting in the true and living God is that it is a giving up of control. We are afraid to give up control because we are afraid that we will have lost something. But the truth is, That it's not until we give up control that we can ever experience satisfaction. That we can ever experience contentment in the way that God has called us to. But here there's this spiritual thirst for the covenant God. And he says, here I am in this desert. In verse 2 he says, he says, what I have done here is I've, I've looked upon you in your sanctuary. In other words, I'm, I'm away from home. I'm away from the sanctuary. I'm away from that place of worship where I've gathered with other people. And I've seen, he says here, your power and your glory. And so now that I am out here and I am cut off from that, I am looking to that. I am remembering the way I have seen your power and your glory. Now, there's a lot of things here. But do you notice what he does in his trouble and adversity? Well, he thirsts for the presence of God. And he remembers the God that he has encountered in worship, in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle, in the temple. He remembers the the manifestation of His presence, the the symbols of His presence and power. He looks to the past. He, He remembers what God has done in His life in corporate worship. And He thinks about the facts of God's faithfulness. 
the facts of what <coughs> excuse me the facts of what he knows about God's power and God's glory that's what he thinks about what does he not do in the present adversity He does not look to the future and think about what has not happened. He thinks about facts. What has happened. Who God is. Who God has shown Himself to be. That's what he thinks about. He's reminded, I know who you are. But when we are in situations of adversity and trouble and difficulty... What a lot of us do is fixate on what is ahead. And we write in worst case scenario of what is ahead. And so we live with this foreboding and and we live as though the worst thing possible in our mind is going to happen. And by the way, we're not even good about deciding what the worst thing is. The worst thing for Peter was that if Jesus went to a cross. And it was the best thing that could ever happen to Peter. Stop it! Don't do that! Why do you try to write the story out? Because you want control. Even the idea of this, this, well, I'm just a person who wants to be prepared. No! That's not what you're told to do here. When, When you are dealing with adversity and difficulty, you say, I'm not in control, but here is the one who has always been in control who has shown me this, who has done this, who has saved me, who has brought me into a relationship with Him, who has shown me His power, who has shown me His glory, who has acted in ways I would have never thought were right, but they have accomplished His purposes, and I will trust in Him. He will write the story as it goes forward. Do you see it? You see, but that's a spiritual thirst for the covenant God. It's not a thirst to control the future. It's not a thirst to get your way. It's not a thirst for the gifts of God. It's a thirst for God. Jesus says in Matthew 6.34, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. What's He saying there? Stop writing out the way you think everything is going to play out. And even if you were to write out the way you think everything is going to play out wonderfully, it doesn't work either. Because what is wonderful as things play out is often not what you expect. Don't do it. Thirst for God. Don't thirst for control. Thirst for God. Don't thirst for the gifts of God. If God really cares about me, He'll do this, and this will happen this way, and and this will unfold. No. This is the key. Spiritual thirst for the covenant of God. Not simply the gifts of God. You know, very few of us have have ever been really thirsty. Uh, We live in such a place of plenty. Now, I played sports back when I was a kid. Back when they stupidly thought that it would make you really tough not to give you hardly any liquids while you practiced. Right? Told you before, I, worked, I practiced on a baseball field where we didn't even have a water fountain. Coach wouldn't allow a cooler. There was just a sprinkler system coming up from the ground, and we would bring straws and stick it down in there and suck the water up. Right? 
That's going to make you really tough. Well, that is stupid. But I do know what it's like to practice three hours in Alabama heat and be really thirsty. And that water in that sprinkler was glorious. Glory. Probably rust and tainted. I could care less. Right? Real thirst produces this sense of, I need this. I, I want this. I, this will satisfy me. And it did satisfy me. He says, thirst for God. Don't thirst for what you have decided are the appropriate gifts for God in your life because that is not thirsting for God. That's thirsting for what you want. Thirst for God. Knowing that the only way you're going to experience that ah, is if it's actually God. And not you trying to program what you call God. Spiritual thirst for the covenant God. But secondly, delight in covenant love. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Now here it's translated steadfast love is that Hebrew word hesed. And it's really, really hard to translate. And so sometimes you get covenant love. Sometimes you get loyal love. Sometimes you get loving kindness. Sometimes you get steadfast love. The idea of hesed is it's kind of, it, it, it carries the freight of the New Testament word for grace, but, but, it, but it essentially means the faithful continuance of God's steady, unchangeable love. Hard to do that in one word. Steady, unchangeable love. It does not change. It is steadfast. He is the God of covenant promise, and He keeps all of His promises. And so therefore, His steadfast love, it says, is better than life. I've applied this to my life. I've applied, rather, my life to this truth thousands of times. It really reorients everything. Going through pain and difficulty. Your steadfast love is better than life. Let let me think about that. Let Let me think about the ways your steadfast love is better than life. If I didn't have your steadfast love, what would be the meaning and purpose of this life? What would be the reality of my eternal life? Maybe I should look at this situation differently because your steadfast love is better than life. Or something wonderful happens and you get the praise of people and, and, and you're appreciating that and thankful for that, but, but your steadfast love is better than life. Oh, the applause of people will end. The complaints of people will come. I, this is just what it means to live in the world. But, but, but I can appreciate the applause because I don't depend on it. Your steadfast love is better than life. And so when the applause comes, it's one of those things in life that remind me that one day I will stand before you and you will say, by your grace, well done, good and faithful servant. (coughs) That's what I live for, not the other. So I'm rightfully thankful for the the applause when it comes because I do not need it. I, I could go through every scenario you could imagine. This applies to everything. But you have to apply it. You have to think it out. You have to uh, 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 put your situation, your circumstance, and, and think it out in light of this. Because this is a call not just simply to, to know this, but to experience it. 
we are to trust God, but we are to sense God. We are to feel the goodness of God. That's what the Scripture tells us. It it is possible. His steadfast love is greater than everything, and it's worth everything. And and if if living for His steadfast love cost me my life, it it would be no, no loss at all because of what He has given and promised me. Your steadfast love is better than life. And what can you do in response to that but but praise Him? My lips will praise you. You see, when He says it's better than life, He's comparing two good things here. It's not as though life is a bad thing and His steadfast love is a good thing and you drudge through life. And No, no. He's comparing two good things. You're to see life as a good thing and to be thankful for it. And thankful for all kinds of things in this life. But in comparison, His steadfast love is better. That's the only way that you'll rightly interact with all the good things in life. And it's the only way you'll see them ultimately as good. Because if you don't get this right, you will demand of them what they cannot offer, and that is that they would be God. They would fulfill you and satisfy you. You can't do that. So you will not enjoy the good things in this life unless you see that His steadfast love is better than life. It is foundational. It's the reason why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Now, think about this sensing thing. We're to sense the truth. You know that. Scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Why does it use a word like taste? Jonathan Edwards explains this in this way. He says, think about honey. You can have a belief that honey is sweet. You can study honey. You can study the the, the reasons why it is sweet, and you can have a belief that it is sweet. But that is not like tasting the sweetness of honey. Once you taste the sweetness of honey, now you've experienced it. And now you know it in a different way and at a different level. It's one thing for us to say, God's steadfast love... And to think about it as an idea, a concept, a, a, a teaching. It's another thing for us to have experienced God's steadfast love. And have tasted and said that the Lord's steadfast love is good. You see, belief about honey. Uh, you will believe honey is sweet if you've experienced honey is sweet. But if you've experienced honey is sweet... That's a different level of understanding. That's what he's calling us to here. You know what happens when, you, when something affects you at that level? And you're, you, it affects you at the, the level of your senses? I've experienced it, I've tasted it. You, you want to say, hey, come in here, try this honey. And you know if you love to cook or make food, and it is a gut punch when you have this dish and you think it's great. And somebody else tries it and they're like, that's pretty good. Get out, let me invite somebody else over. I want somebody else to say, this is amazing. 
We've got these little pecan, praline pecans here. Judy and I call them precious. <laughs> because the first time we ate them, we said, oh my word, we have found it. <laughs> this is perfect. The sweet and the salt just covering up this wonderful pecan. You can get it at Sam's, by the way. Uh, only in the winter. And we didn't know that when we discovered last year. So we go bopping in there in January. Won't have them again till next winter. Man, I was mad. But, but we've tasted it. We, we want others to Judy gives them out to people. And she's like, try one. That's the way it works. You see, this is the way when you have experience, when you've tasted that the Lord is good, you want, you want to praise Him and you want others to praise Him. And you will, will bless Him, acclaim Him, praise Him as long as you live. Notice what has happened here. His trouble, His adversity has not changed, but He has. How did that happen? Did it just happen? No! spiritual thirst for the covenant God. Led him to remember his delight in covenant love. He has gotten himself by God's grace from where his situation to where he is now. And now he's talking about praising and blessing and lifting his hands up in his name. You know the way this kind of thing works. Uh, I almost showed a video of uh, my family's reaction I was calm, but only because I just had hip surgery and couldn't move. When Alabama had the last play come back against Auburn, and somebody videotaped our family, you wouldn't have thought these, these Prince kids could act like they acted. I mean, they are jumping up and down and rolling around, and, 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 and just like, why? Because we watch every game. It, it, for some weird reason, it matters to us. And nothing matters more than beating Auburn. <laughs> and I just, I immediately thought of Casey McCall and how sad he was, and it made me feel better. <laughs> but, but it's so arbitrary. Why do we, why does it, well, we do this together. Susu's away at school, and she's like, watching the games is not the same by myself. Yeah, that's the way it works. You don't, you don't share with these things you delight in by yourself. If you believe that the, the steadfast love of God is better than life, then you're constantly saying, hey, look at how this happened in my life. Apply it to your life. Lean into it. Believe it. Understand that you can experience this in a way that you never dreamed possible. You know, when you're in fellowship with God, even your petitions turn into praise. When you're out of fellowship with God, even what you try to offer as praise turns into petition. Right? Just want, give me, give me. But, but when, you, when, when you are experiencing the steadfast love of God, you cannot help but to praise God. And notice here, my lips shall praise you vocally, but at the end... I will lift up my hands in your name physically. It is a picture here of the way the truth of the gospel affects your mind, but also is to get down into your affections. And with our bodies, it just doesn't affect our mouths. It affects 
all of us demonstrated here by hands. That's the reason why his lips and tongues and hands and mind and and intellect and soul and all these things are mentioned here. It is to affect every part of your being. Knowing what is better than life liberates you to actually enjoy life. Because you're not asking too much of the things of life. I've got news for you. God is not stingy. God is not shrinking what's enjoyable. Uh, We have a hard time thinking like that. I I knew a guy who uh, talked to, he enjoyed golf, but he felt guilty about enjoying golf. What? Enjoy to the glory of God. Remember God in the midst of it. Don't use it as a substitute for God, but if you don't use it as a substitute for God, enjoy it to the glory of God. Right? You may enjoy, like Nate, riding around looking at trees. You, you may enjoy gardening, my wife. You know, I'm thankful for a garden. I don't do one thing for that garden. Uh, I don't, like, okay. The peppers are great, but I don't want to do the work to get it. She does. She loves it. <clears throat> but, but, but you see how that works? The things that, you're not trying to shrink down. The only things that you should enjoy is when you're at church or when you're directly reading your Bible or when you're directly praying. No! If that's true of you, then you don't understand what you're reading. You're not praying to the same God. This is not a stingy God. This God created a world that says, look at it and see and enjoy all of these good things, but understand that they are good things because I am a good God. None of them will ever take my place. Lesser joys are direct your thoughts to Him, the greatest joy. And by the way, we're going to talk about that all year next year with this all things banner we're hanging over the year. But thirdly, meditate on His gracious help. Look with me there at verses 5-7. through My soul, inner being, will be satisfied, satiated, full, as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. Notice that beginning there. My soul, my inner being will be satisfied. And then it uses a, one of these examples here. As with fat and rich food. Well, if fat and rich food doesn't make you go, oh, man, that sounds good. You're just weird. Right? He puts this here because that is the natural reaction. You may be in better shape than me, but you don't enjoy food as much as I do. As with fat and rich food, you're not supposed to be thinking, yeah, but how's that going to affect you? No, stop it. Yeah, eat too much food, you're a glutton, you're an idolater, it's a substitute for God, stop that. But if you're leading this saying, this should be talking about dates and nuts, stop that too. Fat and rich food. There's supposed to be a universal, oh yeah, I know what that tastes like. That, that, that is good. That satisfies me. And when something satisfies me, I call other people over. I praise you. And I want to praise you to other people. And I do it with joyful lips. Remember the situation he's in. Look at how he's worked himself to this point. 
And He's done it by a spiritual thirst for the covenant God. He's done it by delighting in His covenant grace, His mercy. And and He he is meditating here on His gracious help. And in verse 6, notice, I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you. The word meditate, muse, mutter, utter. Right? When you're in bed and when you're trying to go to sleep, you're not fully, fully there the way you normally are. You, you speak, you, you mutter things, but I remember you on my bed in the watches of the night. Military charges of the guard would change and shifts. And David says, I am awake. This is a can't sleep restlessness. And so I'm going to use that to do something. Now, why does he do this? Why does he bring this up? This is so often a place of easy attack of the evil one. Right? Now, some of you may sort of be restless in the middle of the night and you only think wonderful thoughts. But that's not the norm. A lot of people get up every morning with their mind racing about all the things that aren't the way they want them to be. Right? That, you, you didn't... You didn't program yourself, say, wake up thinking about how bad things are. But, but sometimes it's just, how, so what do you, you fight it. You see, all of the, this is calling us to this, this experiencing God in this way that, that it affects us at, at the level of our senses, but, but, but we are to pursue that even as when we receive it, we know it only comes by grace. So what are you thinking about just before you go to bed? What have you decided when you're in that restless state to mutter about while you're there? To, to take that thought that comes in your mind and quit muttering about it and mutter about something else? What have you determined to see when you get up first in the morning? He says in this situation, he remembers God on his bed. He meditates on him in the watches of the night. He takes a place that could be so obviously a place of attack from the evil one, and he's attempting to reclaim it for the glory of God. Everybody has those thoughts that pop into your mind. You are not an absolute victim to those thoughts, though. You are to replace those thoughts with truth. You know how to do that. I mean, if you're, you're married and you have a situation, you're angry with your spouse, sometimes you just have to step back and say, Okay, there's a lot more that's gone on between me and her than this situation, right? And it changes, right? We'll get by this. We've gotten by this stuff a lot bigger. You you meet that with truth. If you live every moment like every single thing that's not the way you want it to be is the end of the world, first of all, that's rebellion against God, and it's that control thing again. But secondly, you have to fight these things. So you predetermine what you're going to mutter about in the middle of the night. God, His goodness, and the gospel. Oh, you might start out muttering about something else. But verse 7 is the key. For you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Divine help. That's what you can't do for yourself. You, O God, have done for me. You have been my help. In the shadow of your wings, 
meaning protection and provision. The ideas of, of a large bird here protecting the young underneath the wings. Your protection and provision has been mine, and I will sing for joy. This is a determination and an affection. A commitment to defiant joy, no matter whether our son's trying to kill us and we're running around in the wilderness or not. I know who God is. I know who He's shown Himself to be. I know who He has been for me. I know His help. He has not abandoned me. I will sing for joy. That's a determination. But that sort of determination, based on something that is real, the most real reality in the universe... God and who He is and His goodness and His grace turns into an affection. But sometimes you have to make the determination to sing for joy to get to the place where you feel the joy. And when you feel the joy, that's the place that you ultimately want to be. Where you you don't just know that you are to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice as a concept. Now you get to a place where it was easy, easy not to rejoice. And you think, why would I rejoice in this situation? And you remember the way you rejoiced in another situation and the way God met you there. And the way He affected the very inner core of your being, the way you felt in spite of every appearance that you should feel the opposite. And so you determine to sing for joy. Now, that doesn't mean that that affection is going to come in five seconds or five days or five years. But you sing, and you long, not just to know who God is, but to have a sense of who He is, and His goodness in your inner being. Finally, stay near Him and know assurance. Look at verse 8. My soul clings to you. The the same word is used for um, a husband and a wife leaving and cleaving. My soul clings to you. My, My soul is cemented to you. My soul is glued to you. Your right hand upholds me. Your right hand, the the right hand of His power and authority. It upholds, it supports. The picture here uh, of of what the psalmist says is, My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds, upholds me. I can only cling to you because you uphold me, but because you uphold me, I will cling to you and I'm not letting go. Verse 9 and 10, he talks about the defeat of his enemies. He has this sense of assurance. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for the jackals. He goes to this real world situation as he's in the desert because what he's talking about here is real world hope. You see, his mind has been completely changed about his situation in the desert and now he is assured that whatever happens... It will not steal his joy, and it will not alter God's calling on his life. Look down in verse 11. But the king shall rejoice in God, and all who swear by him shall exult or glory. 
For the mouths of liars will be stopped. He reasserts his identity in God, his calling by God, and realizes no matter how this unfolds, those, that calling is irrevocable. It is what God has said. It is what God has done. Therefore, he will rejoice in God. We should exult in God who keeps his promises. You see, this is real world hope. We, we have such a hard time believing what the Bible says over and over and over and over again. And that is that our difficulties and adversities are not keeping us from knowing and serving God. They're the very ground in which we know God the best and serve Him the most faithfully. Oh, how we so often feel when we go through a difficulty. I wish this would go away so I could really serve God. And the Bible's like, please, no. Don't think like that. See it for what it is. Rejoice in God. Have such a a sense of an experience of God down to the depths of your being where you know that no circumstance changes your ability to know God. And to serve Him because the loving kindness of God is better than life. Therefore, it's better than everything that is in life. Therefore, embrace all of the good things of life under His authority and live with this sense of joy that cannot be tamped down no matter what. And finally, think about Jesus in Psalm 63. One of the things I started doing years ago was... um, Studying the Psalms and then thinking about Jesus singing the Psalms and applying them to himself. I was in a seminary class on Old Testament one time, and the question was how many of the Psalms are messianic Psalms? And I knew the answer that he wanted me to give, but I was willing to take the point deduction. All of them is what I wrote. They're all ultimately about Jesus. Every one of these Psalms. See, that's the reason why this, the, the way it calls you and affects you and, and calls you to have this affection should not discourage you. Because the one that ultimately has all of those proper affections is Jesus. And He is the one who saves us. We have never for one second loved the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, though we long to, but Jesus did for us. So Jesus in Psalm 63 Has there ever been anybody who could say with more clarity that the steadfast love of God is better than life? Than God the Son who came and gave His life in obedience to the plan of the Father? The One who went to the cross for the joy set before Him? The steadfast love of of God is better than life? Oh, the one who who pursued the Father even while he was in the flesh and prayed to him and and prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This longing for obedience to the Father and ultimately expressed in the willingness to die, believing that the steadfast love of God was better than clinging on to his incarnate life. He came to give his life. He is the one who is 
the king, the king who laid down his life for his people, but the laying down the life of his people did not put him on a cross as the end of his reign and the ending of his promises, but were the very way they were accomplished. Oh yeah, for the joy set before him. So when David here in his sin says, but the king shall rejoice in God and all who swear by him shall exult Ultimately, that's pointing to the greater than David who would give his life for his people. And yes, indeed, that king shall rejoice now and forever through the redemption of his people who will exult with him for all eternity. Oh, long, long for this experience with God. But don't ever think that you're earning anything. Because there is one And it's His righteousness. And His righteousness alone that makes you right with God. You wouldn't have any desire or any longing for God if it weren't for Him. That is the true and living God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You so much for Your perfect and precious Word. I thank You for the privilege to close out this year together in worship, every person in this room so helped me preach this morning because they were here. Every person in this room increases my joy. The reality that people gather like this week by week helps me feel the truth of who you are. Oh Lord, I thank you for all the times I've seen a brother or sister who'd just gone through terrible tragedy or who's so weak they can hardly be here, but they are here singing. And my heart goes, yes, that's the God we serve. Oh, Lord, help us. Help us to long, but help us to know what it means to say our thirst is quenched by the one who is living water. And then long all the more. And then know what it means to be quenched again and again and again. And the one who will satisfy his people, not just now, but for eternity. It's in his name we pray. Amen.